0: And if you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is found on page 1178 of the Pew Bible. If you want to use that, 1178 of the Pew Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you're visiting with us this morning, it's our usual practice to go more or less verse by verse uh, through the books of the Bible. However, at certain times we will uh, sort of zoom out, as it were, and ask, what does the Bible as a whole say about something in our text? And that's what we'll be doing today as we consider the office of elder or overseer. Next week, uh, the 18th, uh, Lord willing, we will consider the office of deacon. And then on the final Sunday of June, June 25th, we'll go uh, more verse by verse through this section of 1 Timothy, looking at the character traits of both deacons and elders. Now, last week, you may recall, we noted that chapter 3, verse 1 offers us an important perspective on the church of Jesus Christ. Although some modern Americans may bristle at it, Jesus clearly intended his church to be an institution with officers. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, The church is more than that. But the the book of Acts tells us that Paul appointed overseers in every local church. In the book of Titus, Paul commands Titus to appoint these same overseers or elders throughout the churches of Crete. So when we're thinking about the New Testament church, according to scripture, we are talking about an institution. Again, the church is more than just another institution. It's not just, you know, the local symphony or your alma mater. It is the body of Christ against which the gates of hell will never finally prevail. It is a spiritual mystery. And it is a family, a warm and inviting and loving place. However, it is not less than an institution. It was organized. It had structure. It had rules. It had confessions in places like Philippians 2. And it had traditions like baptism and the Lord's Supper. Last week, we also identified together the office of overseer mentioned in that first verse, in chapter, one, chapter 3, we noted that in the New Testament, the office of overseer and bishop are identical, interchangeable. Now it is true that the office of bishop was made distinct from elder in about 110 AD under the Bishop Ignatius. So very early in Christian history. However, it is an undeniable fact We saw it in so many texts, and even some Anglican and Roman Catholic uh, scholars admit this that in the New Testament itself, in the New Testament itself, bishop equals elder, elder equals bishop, bishop equals pastor. Lastly, I wrapped up by encouraging you to care, to care about all this. I know your lives are busy and often painful. You may have more or less time to sink into this, and I certainly understand that. However, if we care about long-term faithfulness, if we don't want to rebuild the church every generation or so, if we love our grandchildren, even before we've had them in some cases, we have to think about institutional integrity. The office of elder or overseer is a big part of that discussion. For these reasons this morning, I want to go more deeply with you into this office of overseer. My goal is not to overemphasize the office of elder. Elders do not have all the answers, we admit that, and we are not the focus of the church. Christ is. One of the unfortunate dangers of our name, Presbyterian, is that it can give that impression since the word presbyter is the word for elder. But we don't use that name to glorify elders. Rather, we take that name simply to say that our churches are ordered by a plurality of elders, not by a pope or a prince of the church wearing a crown and calling himself bishop. That bishop system may have been a necessary adjustment for a time for the early church, given their unique circumstances, but its difficulties are many. Today, then, let's look again at Paul's concern for elder governance and what that really means. So let me invite you to stand. We'll read chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes Timothy and says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of bishop or overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an episkopos and bishop or overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we do come to you once again as the great shepherd of the sheep. And we ask that as we study your word together this morning, you would open our hearts to receive it with joy. And we pray that through the work that only your Holy Spirit can do, our hearts and lives would be changed by it. Father, we do not live by bread alone, but we live by the word that proceeds from your mouth. So feed now your people through the teaching of your word, and this we ask and pray for in Jesus' holy name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. At the time of Jesus' birth, go back with me in time to that period A couple of hundred years around the time of Jesus' birth, it's called by scholars Second Temple Judaism. At the time of Jesus' birth and the writing of the New Testament, most Jews did not live in Jerusalem and they didn't live near the temple. In fact, Jews lived all over the ancient world, establishing communities in hundreds of cities and villages and big cities like Rome, Ephesus, Corinth, and many of the cities of Northern Africa. Wherever these Jews went, remember this is prior to the coming of Christ, they established synagogues or gatherings, literally churches. Ecclesia is the Greek word, and it's taken actually from the Old Testament. It's an Old Testament word, and it simply means a gathering or a mustering of God's people for worship. So far from Jerusalem... Jews all over the world and even in Israel when they didn't live in Jerusalem would meet on the Sabbath in these gatherings or churches for prayer, fellowship, and study. These synagogues or churches would not only draw devout Jews, but as the book of Acts makes clear, Gentiles were coming to faith in the true God and coming to these synagogues as well. They are sometimes called in Scripture proselytes. Proselytes, meaning Gentile converts to Judaism. Now, unless they were circumcised, uh, these proselytes could never be full members of their synagogue, but many chose to remain as proselytes and to worship there the one true God. The New Testament tells us that one of the greatest early debates of the New Testament church was over whether circumcision should be required for full membership in Messiah's church and Christ's church. And of course, the decision of the apostles was no, it was not required. Now, when Jesus begins his ministry, Luke tells us that he routinely went into these churches and taught the most famous of these moments comes in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus is asked on the Sabbath day to stand up in the church and read the scripture of the day. It was from Isaiah. And having read it, Jesus sat down and began to explain it or preach it. And the people marveled and they said, quote, isn't this Joseph's son? Paul followed Jesus' pattern. He followed Jesus' pattern. And almost always, as you go through Acts, Paul went into the synagogues first, and when he entered a town, most early Christians were, in fact, Jews and Gentile proselytes from the synagogue who believed the message of Jesus, and then began sharing that with their neighbors. Now, the New Testament makes clear, and all our historical information confirms, that Paul... And the other apostles used the terminology and ideas God had already established in the years leading up to Jesus' birth. And so the New Testament church was partially built on this already existing model, borrowing much of the terminology and structure of the synagogue, including the office of elder or overseer. By the way, if you have friends or family in the Roman Catholic Church, I think it's especially important to know this and even to show it to them from Scripture. If the New Testament church, what we're doing here, is a temple, if it's built on the model of the temple, then it would make sense for us to have priests and to have a sacrifice and a mass every week. But as we noted, the model for the church was not the temple, but the synagogue. The Ephesian church, the church mentioned here in 1 Timothy, the churches in Galatia, the churches in Corinth were not doing sacrifices and did not have a priesthood. They were meeting for prayer, worship, and teaching, as all New Testament churches did. In this sense, then, I think you can see this, there's a deep connection between our lives and the lives of faithful Jews in the days and years leading up to Jesus' birth. Our temple, as New Testament Christians, our temple is also far away in one sense. It is in heaven, where Jesus has made the final, non-repeatable sacrifice of himself. Distant physically, not spiritually, Because we talked about this this morning in my opening prayer, we do enter that temple spiritually in worship, but we are distant physically from that temple. And so we meet on the first day of the week for prayer, worship, and preaching, much as Jesus' family and friends would have done on the Old Testament Sabbath. And in these synagogues, those gathering places, men were chosen as overseers and elders to ensure the order and worship of the people. So it was from these synagogues that Paul took the office of overseer or elder. He didn't make this up or invent it out of nothing. And that's good news because it means we can look to the whole of the Bible to understand the office of elder. And just a reminder, we're doing this because this office is really important to the pastoral epistles, which we are studying Timothy and Titus, 1 Timothy and Titus, both contain significant sections devoted to who should be an overseer and what an overseer should be doing. So please do not misunderstand me this morning. I'm not camping out on the office because I want to glorify myself as an elder or because I'm fixated on my own calling. I think the New Testament itself demands we wrestle through this teaching and the pastoral epistles especially demand it. In fact, we really could do a series of sermons on the office of elder in the church. There's so much to think about. But for today, I want to restrict myself to three questions. First, where did it come from? Second, what's it about? And lastly, how should we think about it today? Where did it come from? What's it really about? And how should we think and feel about it today? So first, let's think for just a moment about where it came from. In other words, how did the Jews of Jesus' day know to appoint elders as they set up their synagogues? And why were the apostles comfortable, comfortable to continue that tradition? The answer, of course, is that the office of elder was rooted in the Old Testament revelation. The language of an overseer, of a bishop, of an episkopos, actually begins in the book of Genesis, where it is often translated with the word visitation. For example, we read how God visited Sarah, Abraham's wife, and she conceived. That word in the Greek Old Testament is episkopos. The same language is used by Joseph. As he's dying, he's telling his descendants, you're going to be slaves for a time in Egypt, but then God will bishop you. He will visit you. So you can begin to see already the idea of this office taking shape in God's loving oversight of his people. When we come to the book of Exodus, God tells Israel that he's seen their harsh slavery and will now visit them, bishop them, literally. He's going to shepherd them out of slavery and deliver them from their enemies. And once the people go free, once they escape slavery, what do they do? They begin to reorganize into a holy nation centered on God's word and on Moses, their prophet. The Bible tells us that even before Moses came, the people had elders in Egypt, but now the Bible makes that explicit. God appoints 70 men through Moses to reflect a small portion of his oversight. We read of Moses calling men into eldership and using the language of pastor and bishop. When he appoints Joshua to succeed him, For example, he calls Joshua to shepherd the people as a bishop or overseer. Now, when Moses appoints these men, he is acknowledging something, isn't he? He's acknowledging that he alone cannot bear the responsibility of the leadership of so great a nation. And this becomes a key dimension of what we see in the New Testament and what I hope we see in our local church. The New Testament expects that churches will be governed by multiple men sharing the burden of oversight. The language, this language of oversight then goes on throughout the Old Testament. It's used frequently in the book of Numbers for the numbering of God's people, the marking out of Israel as the people of God, the membership lists. The elders were expected to name who was in and who was out, and know the people, because as these people enter the land, remember, their name and their family will be tied to their inheritance. To the land is God's great gift to them. And this same language even appears in Judges and Joshua. As Israel and Joshua and Judges fights to get hold of the land, the terminology of bishop is used to describe the marshalling of troops, So the numbering of who is in and who is out and the marshalling of the troops for battle. So watching, helping, overseeing, numbering, and marshalling all come into view. These are some of the details of the text. But just step back with me for a moment and see the big picture. The language of pastor or shepherd or bishop or overseer is really all throughout the Old Testament, isn't it? So many of the greatest biblical leaders were shepherds. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and David, to name a few. This work of overseeing a flock then and pastoring it is absolutely central to the Bible's understanding of leadership. I think it's fair to say that in this area, the area of leadership, the Bible does have one great metaphor that triumphs over all others, and it is the metaphor of the shepherd. Shepherd is the dominant idea of leadership in the Old Covenant. So you see, it's no accident. It's no accident that the most famous section of the entire Old Testament is about shepherds or pastors. David, a former shepherd, called to be a shepherd king, writes, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. When we come to the New Testament, the book of Acts actually begins with the language of bishop. Since Judas Iscariot is now dead... Acts begins with the apostles choosing a new 12th member to take his place. And Peter stands up in Acts 1 and says, literally in Greek, let another person take his episkopos, his bishopric. Years later, God calls the apostle Paul. And no surprise, Paul also appoints elders or bishops And in places like Titus and Acts 20, Paul calls these elders to exercise the office of bishop or overseer. Peter calls on elders to shepherd the flock of God. And please understand, this wasn't something Peter and Paul came to eventually or slowly. This didn't evolve. It was their practice from the very start. Some people especially American critical scholars, like to pretend, they like to pretend a lot of things, but they especially like to pretend that at first, at first the New Testament church was just a place of giftedness. People freely expressing their faith, no rules, just right. Undoubtedly, the hippie movement and the sexual revolution are the actual influences here, not the Old Testament or Judaism or the historical record. And so some today will try to tell you, they'll try to paint for you this picture that the earliest church was a sort of free and easy place that only later on was ruined when the vibe was crushed by institutional authority. But this is a lie and a projection of our culture back onto the Bible. We know this because on the first missionary journey of Paul, we read this, that Paul and Barnabas, quote, "...appointed elders in every church. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed." End quote. Remember, when Paul began preaching... His audiences initially had no New Testament books. They searched the scriptures, the Old Testament, to discover the truth of Paul's message and to set up churches. When they searched those scriptures, they did not find hippie communes, but orderly gatherings of solemn worship and thoughtful learning. We'll talk more about this again at the end of the sermon, but let me just pause here to admit that many people have indeed used leadership positions in the church to abuse others i know why for some people that vision of the early church as a place with no rules just right it's appealing because they've been abused by people in authority in the church paul warned this very church in acts 20 remember first timothy is written to timothy at the church in ephesus he warns this very church in acts 20 that from the eldership, from the elders of the church, men would arise teaching false doctrine and leading people astray. I hope we take this reality seriously. I'm not here to advocate for total power for elders or trying to hide the mixed history and many failures of elders, including my own weaknesses and failures. However, I think recent events in our world and in our lives can help us see why God gives us God gives us shepherds at every stage of our life. Whether when we're children, those shepherds primarily are parents. As adults, it's elders or mentors that God brings into our life. You see the only thing worse, the only thing worse than bad leadership is no leadership at all. Ask refugees from Syria where a nation is broken and has no government, which is worse, bad government or no government at all? Or look at what happened in our streets and cities during COVID and during the rioting when all government was lost. Leadership is a necessary part of human flourishing, and that vacuum will always be filled one way or another. So first of all, just a quick look at the deep roots of the office of elder and why God has always worked this way. That's where it comes from. Second, what is the office about? What's it about? What is its focus? And the very first thing I want to say to you is that elders are not responsible for the entire work of the church. Every Christian is called by God and given gifts. Paul urges us in Ephesians 4, quote, to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. And then he goes on to write, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul puts it even more emphatically in 1 Corinthians 12. Paul writes, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Because because the elders of the church are more visible, because we're up here And because our church is named after them, a terrible misunderstanding can sometimes form. But if you just look around you on any given Sunday morning or evening, you'll quickly realize how dependent we are on all the gifts of God's people. The elders watch over this growth, but they are not the only ones working But what then, what then is their focus? Why do we have them? What is the focus of the elders? A couple of important passages for you, two that I want to share with you this morning, I think are highly enlightening. In Acts chapter 6, the elders and apostles we read were getting bogged down. They were trying to do too much, quite frankly. Church is growing explosively. And so in a wonderful moment of cooperation, the elders appointed deacons to take things off their plate, especially the care of the poor, the elderly, those in need of mercy. And, and here's what the apostles and elders said. Quote, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, to this work. But we, the elders, will devote ourselves to prayer And to the ministry of the word. That passage, I think, gives us a critical insight into the work or focus of the elder. It is, first of all, a focus on prayer and word ministry. Our elder meetings, our session meetings, especially lately, are notorious for going towards midnight. And uh, many of you know this, especially patient wives who are sitting at home at 11 o'clock at night wondering where their husband is. But the reason our meetings go so late is because we spend more than an hour of the first part of the meeting praying uh, for all the needs of the church, for all of you, uh, in a wide range of prayers. That's not accidental. That's our calling. That's not wasted time so we can get through prayer to get to the real thing, which is decision-making, No, prayer is essential. We give things to the deacons in part that we might more fully devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. To that focus on prayer and the word, let me add one other vital text. This is Hebrews 13, verse 17. The author of Hebrews writes, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch. It's the word overseer or bishop. They are bishoping, Over your souls. That's a huge responsibility. Think about that. They are in charge of watching out over your soul as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This fits perfectly, you see, with what we've already seen in Acts 20, so many other passages where Paul tells the elders to first guard themselves from sin, and then second to guard the flock over which God has made them an overseer. Peter says the very same thing, he writes, "'So I exhort the elders among you, "'as a fellow elder, "'shepherd the flock of God that is among you, "'exercising oversight, not under compulsion, "'but willingly, as God would have you, "'not for shameful gain, but eagerly, "'not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Simply put, simply put, the elders have a tool set and instructions. Their tool set is the word in prayer. And since the sacraments are a visible presentation of the word, And join to the word, we can include that in their focus. Their focus is word ministry, teaching, preaching, sacraments, and prayer. Second, they have calling or instructions. They're not called to do all the work. Those would be impossible instructions. Rather, they are to exercise oversight as God's people together build God's church. Now, if you're beginning to see just from this really rough overview, if you're beginning to see the dimensions of this calling, you will begin to appreciate why God uses and the Bible uses several different terms for this one office. Uh, we might have thought, you may have thought this last week, Last week wouldn't it have been easier or simpler if God had just been consistent, right? Just use the word elder, not use pastor and bishop and all these different uh, words for what is really just one office. But as our own book of church order reminds us, I think this is very helpful. God did this. He used all these terms to illuminate for us the different dimensions of this calling. He named it as he likes to name things. And whenever God names something, he defines it and explains it. So the title elder, when we're called elders... It evokes the Old Testament, the synagogue, and the Jewish background of men who sat in the gates. You might remember that from your Old Testament, men who would sit in the gate and make rulings for the people and judge and care for them. The title elder focuses on that part of what it means to hold this office, to judge or lead the people, numbering them, marshalling them for battle, gathering them up. When elders are called shepherds or pastors, And that's used interchangeably. The focus shifts more to loving leadership. The shepherd leads, but he leads at close range. He numbers and knows and names all his sheep and cares for them. And so Jesus is, of course, the true good shepherd. And lastly, when elders are called overseers or bishops, it suggests watchfulness, doesn't it? Men who guard the doctrine of the church... Against constant attack. And so it makes sense here in 1 Timothy that Paul would use that title, overseer, even though in other parallel passages he uses other terms. But in this letter, 1 Timothy, where the main threat is false teaching. Timothy has been sent, remember chapter one, Timothy is sent to silence false teaching. Chapter two, Timothy has been sent to purify the worship of the church. And so overseer, chapter three, verse one, overseer is the choice Paul makes here because that is the setting. Overseer points to the watchfulness, the way in which the elder is looking out over the flock. This then, in summary, is the what. It's what we're called to do. It's the work of the elder. And so I hope you can see how much we need your prayers. It's very easy to complain about us, and it's very easy for us to fail because the task is so enormous and complex, and we're so weak. The various titles God uses disclose to us that complexity. So pray for us. Second, we need your gifts. With all that is on our plate, so to speak, we can't possibly do everything that is needed for this community to thrive. If you have found us faithful, not perfect, but faithful, these are the two best gifts you can give us, your prayers and your own abilities. And this leads me to our last question. We've seen where how this is rooted, rooted deeply in God's character and in the Old Testament and the synagogue. That's where it comes from. We've seen what? It's a focus on word, sacrament, and prayer and overseeing the congregation. Lastly, how? How are we to think about it today, right now, in 2023? And now, at last, I, I think we have come to the heart of a terrible problem and the pain of many in this room. For many of us, and this church is known for this, being a place where people come who've been hurt by pastors and elders. Many have been abused spiritually by men in the office of elder and pastor, many in this room. And many of us more recently have watched, especially it seems lately in the last year or so, As elders, abandon the faith and even use the faith and their position to mislead others. In a very real sense, I think this struggle in our hearts that many of us are feeling finds its fullest disclosure in the person of Judas Iscariot, doesn't it? Chosen by Christ. Judas was chosen by Christ. And yet, in Jesus' own words, a devil of a man. In the face of such leaders, we may at times feel like we would be better off without this kind of office. We may wonder, can't we just do community together and not have people in charge? We might find ourselves even, we might find ourselves, many people are doing this, we might find ourselves seeking out churches that do not have authority structures. That have no membership, no accountability, no real clear offices, that sent, simply set up ministry centers and work more and function more like businesses, treating us as valued customers to be won and served in exchange for offerings. But stop for a moment with me and remember remember, no one, no one knew better how the office of elder could be abused than Paul, the very man here writing and calling for the office to be filled yet again. Paul knew that the elders of Israel consented to Jesus' illegal torture and crucifixion. Paul worked with synagogue elders to expel Christians from the synagogue and even imprison them. And on top of that, it is Paul who in Acts 20 warns this very church that elders in their midst were not sheep, but wolves. So why in the world did God and Paul stick with this? Why did Paul insist on it? Here's why. Because the office of elder is not some random human office. If it was, we could just move on, outgrow it, and develop new models. But it's not just random. Rather, listen, the office of elder is a visible manifestation of something in God's heart. God is a shepherd. God is a bishop at his great heart He always has been, he always will be. As Psalm 23 reminds us, he will shepherd us forever and ever. This was Jesus' point in John 10 when he spoke of himself as the good shepherd. So bishops or elders or pastors are not just names we came up with, a traditional office of our own making. Rather, they are symbols. Symbols. And if this office isn't a random tradition, but a sacred symbol, we must not touch it or get rid of it or question its existence. Rather, we must guard it and demand integrity from those who hold it because they are representing to the congregation the very heart of our shepherd God. And that is what this passage does, doesn't it? What is Paul saying in these seven verses? He is describing true elders, men of character. Bishop Augustine, writing 1,700 years ago, felt, he already felt this conflict over what is a bishop or an elder. And so he says this to his congregation. He says, are there bad bishops? Perish the thought there aren't any yes i have the nerve i have the gall to say there are no bad bishops because if they are bad they aren't bishops you my congregation are calling me back again to the name and saying he's a bishop because he's seated on the bishop's throne and here here what here's what augustine says And a straw, and a straw scarecrow is guarding the vineyard. Does the fact that the scarecrow is standing in the field make him a farmer? No, of course not. Does the fact that the man has the title elder or pastor make him one? Certainly not. The answer then is not to run away from this office. Because if we do, we will just invent another office and it will have all the same problems, but without God's ordination. No, the biblical solution is to take this office all the more seriously. To treat men who show themselves as true shepherds with great respect and to not tolerate the false bishop. Why? Why? Because the pastor and the elder are symbols of God's shepherd heart. Do you know what the word symbol means? It's Greek, actually, for a broken piece of something that when you put it with the rest of it, it makes a hole. So in the ancient Near East, a contract might be carved in a tablet of stone and then the end of the contract broken off and given to one of the parties. Then when the two met, the broken end could be shown to fit and so identify the bearer of the covenant. The elder in the church, the true elder, is but a broken piece, a symbol of the true lover of your soul, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Elders are just mail carriers, mail carriers of God who bring his love letters to his people. We should neither make too much of them nor make too little of them, but rather regard them as symbols of a greater love. Even even the broken end of God's love contract with his people is to be valued. And elders, because we are that broken symbol, how prayerfully, brother elders, how prayerfully, how carefully are we to fulfill our calling. For to be an elder is to be a living symbol of a shepherd's love. Amen. Let's pray. Father, who is sufficient for these things? Certainly not myself, not any of the seven men who are elders in this place. We see in ourselves endless weakness, physical disability, mental struggles, all kinds of hardships and temptations. But we look this morning as a congregation and as elders to the throne of our Shepherd King, and we pray that for his name's sake we might be made broken symbols of his love. Help us then to know this day, Father the depth of the love of Christ for us. And when your people look upon their shepherds and elders, may they see just a small portion of that contract of love sealed in blood that you have made with all your elect. Fill then your people today with a knowledge of your abiding shepherd love for them. We pray do this, that Christ might be glorified here. And so we ask it for his sake. Amen.